I'll invite you to turn to two openings of Scripture this morning, Genesis chapter 1 and Psalm 8. We started a series uh, a few weeks ago on, uh, we've been talking about spiritual dominion. And we want to continue with that, go a little bit further this morning perhaps, if the Lord wills. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, after God has created the earth and everything that's in it, then he, the scripture tells us of his plan to make mankind. And he said this, Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Image and likeness are two different things. He's not just talking about appearance. He's talking about same quality of being. Let us make man after our, or in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now in Psalm 8, something is a little blind to the Western reader it seems, but the Jews well understood that uh, the eighth psalm is uh, is David speaking prophetically, or well, rather than prophetically, let me use this term, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, looking back at creation, and he's identifying Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6 tell us that what David says in Psalm 8 was an angel. He's quoting an angel at what happened at the creation that we just read about in Genesis 126. Psalm 8 Beginning in verse 3, he said, When I consider my, the, thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Here's what the angel said. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. Now what made the angels so shocked at God's plan to make this thing called man? It was God's plan for dominion. Verse 5. For thou hast made him to be a little lower than the angels. This word angels is also the word is uh, literally the Hebrew is the word Elohim. It's the word that's usually translated God. Now I don't know what the translators had in mind on this. Maybe it was beyond their thinking that, that uh, the scripture would say that, that God made man a little lower. Or if you'll allow me to say it this way. After our likeness in our image and after our likeness means God made man as close to himself as possible. Now, maybe that was too, hard, too, too much for the translators to accept. I don't know. But I know that this word uh, angels, this word Elohim that's translated angels, isn't used for angels any other place in the, in the Scripture. It's always referring to the Godhead, or most often it's referring to the Godhead at least. So he said, for thou hast made him a little lower than yourself. Here's what the angels are saying. You've made him a little lower than yourself. The angels are not saying you've made man a little lower than you. I'm sorry, the angel's not saying you've made man a little lower than us. He's saying you've made man a little lower than yourself. The Bible says that at the end time, we'll judge the angels. Well, we can't be lower than them if we're going to judge them. So he says, for thou hast made him, man, a little lower than the Elohim, the Godhead, and thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast made him, or thou madest him, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things. Everybody say all things. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, folks, any way you want to read this, there is only one conclusion that you can draw, and that is when God made Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, he made them to be the gods of this world. That doesn't mean they're equal with God in being creators of the universe. It means they put, that God put the world under man's rule. What man said went. And that's why Adam had to fall in order for Satan to become now the God of this world. Satan can't become the God of this world through some kind of attack against mankind other than man giving up his authority by free will and choice. Only Adam giving up, relinquishing his authority... That's the only way that the, that the devil could ever become the God of this world, which 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says he now is. Now, we've, um, we've talked a great deal about, um, uh, over the last couple of weeks, about different times and different instances where men in the Old Testament used the power of God, they used the, the, uh, the direction of God, if you will, to perform signs and wonders and miracles, great feats of, uh, uh, of miracle-working power, and in many cases superseded the laws of nature, the laws of physics. Now, how is that possible? 
I want you to turn with me over to, um, turn, let's start over in John chapter 3. I don't have any notes for this this morning, so I'm just trusting the Holy Ghost to bring out what he wants me to say. John chapter 3, Jesus comes on the scene, and man, he's starting to do some miracles that nobody has ever seen in the history of the world. But even early on in his ministry, he has done so many wonderful things, so many uh, feats of miracles, so many healing miracles, whatever the case might be, however we want to categorize them. He's utilized the power of God to such a degree, to do, such a degree that even early in his ministry, one of the Jewish leaders, one of the council of the Jews who know the Old Testament, they know about the works of Elijah and Elisha. They know about the works of Moses. They know about the works of Joshua. They know about all these people that we looked at and could have looked at many more than we did last week that used the power of God to supersede the laws of nature. They know about Joshua holding his hand up and stopping the sun and the moon in place for a 24-hour period. They know about these things. And here's what he says. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, or master, or teacher, whichever word, all these words are interchangeable. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Why? For no man doeth these miracles, or can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. In other words, he's saying, we've already seen enough, and, and, and he hadn't seen anything yet. Compared to the things that Jesus will do over the next three years. But early on in the beginning of his ministry. He's already seen enough to say we know that God's with you. Because nobody can do this stuff if God's not there. And Jesus says to him. Notice Jesus' response. Jesus says to him. Verily, verily I say unto you. Verse 3. Except a man. Unless a man be born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now what is Nicodemus subject when he comes to talk to Jesus? Miracles. What does Jesus reply concerning Nicodemus and his comment? He doesn't really ask a question, at least not one that's identified in Scripture, but his comment regarding the miracle working power of God. He said, it's part of the kingdom of God, and you can't get in there without being born again. Here's the point I want you to see, folks. When God made Adam and Eve, put them in the Garden of Eden, and delivered dominion into their hands made them the rulers of this world some people get upset when we use the term the god of this world so okay let's use ruler means the same thing but we don't want to offend anybody we'll wait till later <laughs> but when god made adam and eve the rulers of this world put all the the works of his hands all the created works of god's hands under their dominion under their authority let me ask you a question why did they have it? I'm not asking what was the purpose. I'm asking what was the cause? What was the foundation? What was the reason for them being able to have authority? Why didn't the lion step up and say, wait a minute, I want that? Because he's not made in God's class of being. The apes couldn't step up and say, wait a minute, we've been around here a long time. And you know, this evolution thing, we're part of this, this process. Wouldn't that have been ridiculous? But why not some other created being? Because they're not made in God's image or likeness. In other words, they're not made in God's class of being. Man was the only thing worthy of having dominion. The dominion of the created, the creator's creation. How did man lose that dominion? He lost that dominion through the fall. Through disobeying God and choosing Satan instead. What I want you to see, folks, is that righteousness or that uh, dominion was ordained for righteous man. You remember when, uh, when Adam and Eve fell? God pronounces the curse upon the earth. He pronounces the curse upon mankind. He pronounces the, the things that would be changed and the things that would be different now. And then almost immediately, God said, that uh, the scripture says, that God put a, an angel with a flaming sword around that tree of life to keep man from going and eating of the tree of life and staying in that fallen condition forever. What does that tell you? That tells you God did not intend for man to stay in a fallen state. Now what if man had eaten of that tree? What if he had eaten of the tree of life and stayed in his fallen state forever? That means authority would have passed from righteous man to unrighteous man for all of eternity. And that's what God had to protect against. That's what he had to guard against. Meaning very simply this, dominion was ordained for righteous 
man. Now that brings us back to John chapter 3. When Jesus is answering Nicodemus about the miracle working power of God. And he speaks of being born again. He's speaking of a return to righteousness. What is the miracle working power of God that they've witnessed? Well, what they've already witnessed and what they will witness throughout the ministry of Jesus for the next three years. They've witnessed Jesus taking authority over things of the earth. In many cases, the laws of nature. In other cases, breaking the power of the devil. Exercising greater authority, greater dominion, greater power than the devil can show. It was culminated in John chapter 10 where Jesus, or John chapter 11, I should say, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. At that point, everybody knew there's nothing this guy can't do. And that's when the Jews, the Pharisees, the council said, now we've got to kill him. We don't do away with him now. Everybody's going to believe on him. Why? Because he has displayed the ultimate in power, authority, and dominion. Even death is no match for Jesus. Physical death is no match for Jesus. So when Jesus says, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. He's very simply saying this. He's saying the dominion that you've witnessed, the authority that you've witnessed, the miracle power that you've witnessed is all a part of the kingdom of God. And the entrance to that is righteousness. Being born again. Being born again. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 11. Jesus' authority is questioned at one time by the, disciple, by the, uh, the Jews, the Jewish leaders, in a very specific way. There were times where they, they, they questioned him, they, they brought accusation against him, they did all kinds of things trying to, trying to trip him up. But this one occasion, they asked him point blank about his authority. They didn't, in this case, they didn't question it. They just said, we want to know where it comes from. Let's start in verse 27. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. You didn't know there was a verse 27 in Mark chapter 11, did you? Thought it ended with Mark chapter, with verse 24. And it, they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And they said unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? They're not questioning he's doing them. No argument there. By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority to do these things? Remember we talked about authority or dominion. It can only come one of two ways. Either it has to be given or conferred by someone who has it. Or it is taken by conquest. They don't assume that Jesus has conquered anybody to get it. So they said who gave you this authority? Clearly you've got it. Who gave it to you? And Jesus answered and said unto them. I will also ask you one question. You answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you first. You answer my question and then I'll answer yours. Here's his question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? Can't have that. But if we say of men... They feared the people for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. They thought to say that the baptism of John was a baptism of men would be to discount John's commission from heaven. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer my question, I won't answer yours. Now, he knew they could answer it. They just wouldn't. So Jesus says, I won't answer yours either. But then he gives the answer. He spoke to them in parables, chapter 12. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went away into far country. And at the season, he sent to the husbandman a servant that he might receive from the husbandman of the fruit or the harvest of the vineyard and they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty and again he sent unto them another servant and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled and again he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some having yet therefore one son his well-beloved he sent 
him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. They may have treated my servants badly, but surely they'll treat my, my son well. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman and will give the vineyard to others. Now, folks, please understand that the, that the type and the illustration being used here is that the husbandman is the one, are the ones who have authority over the land that the owner owns, the vineyard. So he says, what, will, what the, the shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman, take their authority, and will give the vineyard unto others. And have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, or hold on him, for, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And they left him and went their way. Here's the point. When Jesus asked the question, the baptism of John, he's literally saying, I'm doing the same work that John did. It only shows up in different ways. So you answer me this. The baptism of John, was it a baptism of men or was it a baptism of heaven? Which one was it? We've already read they were afraid to say that it was of men because they thought the people would revolt against them because they believed John was a prophet. And prophets are sent from God. But if they said if it was from heaven, then he'll say, then why didn't you pay attention to him? Why did you work against him? And at this point in time, John's already been beheaded by Herod. Why didn't you stand up for him? Why didn't you do something about it? So they say, well, we can't answer. Well, what is the answer? The answer is very simply this. John baptized with the baptism of repentance. Acts chapter 19 tells us that when Paul was in the upper coast and having passed through the upper coast and came to Ephesus, it says that he found certain disciples and they were baptized under John's baptism. And, John, and Paul explains that the baptism of John was a baptism of repentance. Is repentance from God or from man? Is anybody out there? Repentance is a baptism of men. Repentance always starts from man. It's man turning from his way. So John is preaching to mankind to turn from his wickedness. Therefore, his baptism was a baptism of men. But now why did he enter into, why did he engage into the ministry that he had? Jesus said himself there was not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's pretty good. It means Moses wasn't greater than John. It means Elijah wasn't greater than John. But we've got more miracles from Moses and Elijah and Elisha and some of the other prophets. We've got a lot more miracles than we do from John the Baptist. We don't have one recorded miracle from John the Baptist. Yet Jesus said he was the greatest of the prophets. Why? What makes him the greatest? He spoke of the one coming after him. John's ministry was very simply, Jesus is on my heels. The Messiah is coming soon. But then I've got a question. If Jesus is saying the baptism of John was a baptism of men, then how in the world is he doing this stuff? How in the world is he doing the, the works that he's doing? How is he performing the miracles that he's performing? Because just as John was anointed of the Holy Ghost to call men to repentance, Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost to reveal the Father to mankind. And that was the source of Jesus' authority. That was the source of Jesus' miracle power. Because he was a righteous man. He is now operating in the same position as Adam did on the face of the earth before the fall. When Adam was created, Adam was, it says that God breathed into him the breath of life. Can you separate life and righteousness? Now, we think of life as being existence. We think of someone, if we lose a loved one or we have a funeral, we think of someone having died. Well, in Bible terms, very seldom does physical death, uh, very seldom does, does death refer to the cessation of existence. We know from what the scripture says, that even if we do bury someone and we have their funeral service or graveside service or whatever, we also know that that person hasn't ceased to exist. They continue to exist. And since existence continues past physical life, that's why it's so important to make sure 
to someone who's prepared for eternity and not just for things that happen here. Physical death is just a change of location. Physical death is much the same as moving, what we consider to be moving from one house to another. So how can you separate life from righteousness? When life was breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, what does that mean? That means he was made in the image of God. He became the righteousness of God. God placed himself, his own spirit, within Adam. That's what Adam lost. You remember the commandment that God gave Adam. He said, thou shalt, eat, uh, thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, what does he mean? What's he, what death is he talking about? Thou shalt surely die. Well, it wasn't physical death because Adam didn't die for another 930 years after. What death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. He's not talking about you'll cease to exist. He's saying you'll now be separated from me. The life, your existence here on the earth will not be based on righteousness. It will not be based on my spirit within you. But instead, you'll be in a fallen condition. And that's why God had to protect the tree of life and keep man from eating of it after he fell. That's why John chapter 1 says, what is it, verse 3, in him was life and the life was the light of men. We could say it this way, in him was righteousness and the righteousness was the light of men. I think one thing that we've done, uh, I think the church has done a disservice to, the, to people throughout the world. And that is this. We've talked of eternal life only in terms of longevity. We haven't talked of eternal life in terms of what does it really mean. Because most people think that eternal life means when we die we get to go to heaven and that's when eternal life really begins. But eternal life begins now when you make Jesus the Lord of your life. Your Lord and Savior. Well, what happens? Well, the Bible says God takes the old spirit out of you, the spirit that was separated from God. Paul said it this way, writing to the Ephesians. He said, man's problem was not that he was a sinner. Man's problem was that he was dead. You who were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death is the problem, not sin. I think the church has done a disservice to, to mankind that way too. We've talked about sin as if sin, meaning actions, is everything. And it's very little. Death is the issue. Spiritual death is the issue. That's why so many of us, after we become born again, after we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, because we don't know we've been made righteous, we keep struggling with sin in our lives. Why? Because we talk about sin rather than death. The Bible says you've been redeemed from spiritual death. It doesn't say you've been redeemed from sin. It says you've been strengthened to overcome sin. Why? Because you've been redeemed from spiritual death. There was an exchange life or righteousness for death. And folks, that righteousness was the foundation. Jesus says so himself. That righteousness was the foundation for the miracles that he performed here on the earth. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Notice what happens here when Jesus commissions the 70 to go out and, and help him in the work. See, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know that you're come from God because nobody can do this stuff you do except God be with him, why did Jesus not say, you don't understand. I'm the son of God and only the son of God can do these great works. That's what he was asking about, isn't it? What Nicodemus, don't you assume from the, from the comment that Nicodemus made about God being with him and doing the miracles? Don't you assume that he's asking uh, what's up with that in some form? Either how do you do that or, 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 or something? Don't you assume that there's a question implied in that? Well, Jesus seems to because he says, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, except you be born again, you can't enter into or enjoy or participate in this miracle power, which is part of the kingdom of God. Why didn't Jesus say then, yeah, but I'm special? That's what the church teaches. The church teaches Jesus did signs and wonders and miracles because he was the son of God. Well, if that's the case, then how could the disciples do miracles when Jesus was here? 
They weren't sons of God. Yeah, but, but Jesus just did something special for them. No, no, no. Wait a minute. If Jesus could only do miracles because he was the son of God, then no matter what Jesus wanted to take place, no matter what power Jesus might have wanted to multiply into, in and through the disciples, that would have been impossible because they were not sons of God. They were unsaved men. I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, folks, but I think I need to. Jesus sends out the 70. He tells them to heal the sick. He tells them to, to, to go tell that he's coming to town. Verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy. Here's after they come back from their commission to go into the cities before him. The 70 returned again with joy saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. If you read the previous verses in the chapter, you'll find out that not one word was said about casting out devils. Not one. He did say heal the sick. He just said, he did say whatever city receives you. Then heal the sick that are therein, the cities that reject you, wipe the dust off your feet and say, well, the kingdom of God came to you, but it's your fault you rejected it. Not one word, not one statement, not one hint of exercising any power to cast out devils and and demons was mentioned. Yet they're getting results in other areas. They come back and say, Jesus, we found out that even the devils are subject to us in your name. Now, what does that mean? To me, that means this. You judge this for yourself, but to me, it means this. You see if I'm reading anything into the Scripture. If they came back and said, Lord, even the devils are subjects unto us through your name, that's saying we took this power and used it according to what you told us, but then it went even further than what you said. Don't you read that there? In other words, we healed the sick wherever people would receive us. We preached the gospel. We told people about you and your coming wherever people received us and boy we found out that it even works over the devil too we found out that your name even has, gives us power over the devil don't you read that in that in that scripture i mean am i am i reading something that's not there even the devils are subject to us through your name that says to me that it worked the way that he said that it would work and they they found that it went even further jesus answered responded And said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power, literally authority, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Can I ask you another question? Is he saying now I'm giving you something more? Why would he give them something more? Why would he give them authority over the devil that they didn't have before when they've just finished the work? What do they need it for now? They just came back. If they ever needed it, they needed it while they were out. Now, Jesus is explaining, here's what my name means. He's not saying, now I'm giving you something you didn't have when you just went out on your ministry trip. He's saying, here's the extent of my name. Here's how far it goes. It goes to exercise authority over all of the devil's power, all of his ability, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's how far my name goes. I didn't tell you about that before. I told you about healing the sick. I told you about, you know, helping people and telling them about me coming to town and so forth. But here's how far my name goes. He's not saying it's a new name. He's not saying here's the new work. He's saying this is what my name does. It gives the holder authority. Over all the power of the devil. And provides divine protection. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now notice the next thing he says. Notwithstanding. Notwithstanding. In this rejoice not. He says now don't get happy because you've got authority over the devil's power. Folks I would submit to you that's where most of the church that the, the part of the church that understands about the authority of Jesus is, is at. They're happy about authority over the devil. Yet Jesus said, that's not the thing to get excited about. Can we have a well duh moment here? If we're not supposed to be excited 
about having authority over the devil's power in our own lives that even extends to personal protection, divine personal protection. Nothing shall by any means hurt us. That would include sickness and disease, wouldn't it? Sickness and disease would be a means whereby the devil would try to hurt you. He certainly does. It sounds to me like there's a lot of things that would be appropriate to get excited about. The devil tries to hurt you through financial tragedy and, and, uh, and crisis, doesn't he? Well, he said nothing else shall by any means hurt you. You've got authority over the devil's attack against your finances and your provision. There's a lot of things there it looks to me like to be happy over, doesn't it to you? Yet Jesus said, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What in the world does that mean? Names written in heaven very simply means this. It means those who have received the life of God, or in their case, would receive the life of God. Maybe I ought to back up before I make this comment. Let me back up a little bit. How could these guys use the miracle working power of God in no matter how it comes? They're not children of God. They're unsaved men. They're spiritually dead men. Just like Joshua was. Just like Moses was. Just like Elijah was. How could spiritually dead men do miracles? Because they had a promise. They had a promise of righteousness. They had a promise of redemption from spiritual death, which means to receive the life of God, which means to be made righteous. These guys are spiritually dead men, but because they're followers of Jesus have a promise of righteousness which is soon to come. And that promise is sufficient as far as God is concerned to be handlers of his miracle working power. Notice what God does not do. God does not sit there and say, well, no, 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 you you don't qualify yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're following Jesus around and you're helping him, but, I mean, after all, you're not even one of the 12. You're just one of the 70. Don't you know there was opportunities for the 70 to think, why couldn't I be one of the 12? Don't you know there were things, human nature, things that that people do, politics and so forth? Don't you know people were thinking, some of the people in the 70 might have had opportunity to think that Peter, what a brown noser. That's the only reason he's one of the 12. John, my goodness, he won't get out of Jesus' lap. Now, don't get religious on me. Don't think, oh, no, the 70 walked around with halos just like the 12 did. These are unsaved men. There's all kinds of politics. There's all kinds of interaction. There's all kinds of emotional uh, stuff that's going on, personality conflicts and so forth. There's all this kind of stuff. And God doesn't look at one and say, no, you lost your temper last week, so you can't be one of the group. And these are unsaved men. These are unrighteous men. But because they were followers of Jesus, they had a promise of righteousness. And that was good enough for God to use them. What are you waiting for? You don't have a promise of righteousness. You have righteousness revealed. So why then would God look at these guys and say, well, you're unrighteous, you're unsaved, but okay, Miracle power. But look at his children who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives and say, no, 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 no. Not you. You had a wrong thought yesterday. You spoke unkindly. See how our thinking is wrong? And the reason our thinking is wrong, in my opinion, you judge it for yourself. But in my opinion, the reason our thinking is wrong is because we focus on sin instead of life. We focus on sin instead of spiritual death. We focus on being uh, forgiven from our sins rather than redeemed from death. We focus on sinners saved by grace instead of being made righteous by the blood of Jesus. What I'm trying to get across to you, and again, I feel like I'm saying it 50 different ways, but it's still the same thing. What I'm trying to focus on is very simply this. 
Jesus did miracles not because he was the son of God. The Bible says that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. And he came to the earth as a man. Jesus, therefore, was operating on the earth as a man, a righteous man, taking the authority that was given to righteous man in the Garden of Eden. And the devil had no place in him. None whatsoever. And he delegated that authority as a righteous man, anointed of God. Remember, John was baptized, or Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River. If Jesus is operating on the earth as the Son of God, now don't get me wrong, he was the Son of God. But he was operating, if he was operating on the earth as the Son of God, who can anoint God? What purpose would there be? What possibility would there be for the Holy Ghost to come down and anoint God? God means you're on the top. If you're on the top, you can't be anointed. Do you see the point? Jesus was operating on the earth as a man. He was the son of God, but he laid all that aside. And he was operating on the earth as a righteous man who then, when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, began to do miracles. But I would submit to you that there were miraculous or supernatural things that happened in Jesus' life even before we have record of the miracles. Else, why would Mary give the instruction that she did to the servants at the the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. She knows there's something about what he says to be done. And she communicates that to the servants before Jesus ever turns the water into wine. Which the Bible says was the first recorded miracle. So she knew there was something about this guy. Why? Before then he wasn't anointed of the Holy Ghost. But he was still a righteous man. See authority doesn't come on the earth because you're anointed of the Holy Ghost. It comes because you are righteous. And made righteous by the blood and the life of Jesus. So when Jesus delivers this to his disciples, the 70, says, Behold, I give you authority to tread on all serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And then he says, But don't get excited about that. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because righteousness is the foundation. I think we in charismatic circles have focused on the power instead of focusing on the foundation for it. And I think that's why we do see Many miracles, many signs and wonders take place, but we see very little character, even among ministers. See, folks, for me, the fact that the Bible says that Jesus bought me both spiritually and physically, it says both my spirit and my body were were bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus, that's why I don't drink. That's why I don't smoke, I won't do drugs, and I won't get tattoos. Now, let me ask you a question. Some people are going to get offended at that. And I'm not saying this to offend anybody or bring condemnation on anybody. I don't care what you do. This is my conviction. If it's not your conviction, that's okay with me. I work this conviction out between me and the Lord. So don't judge me for it. And I won't judge you otherwise. But let me ask you a question. If you or somebody you knew bought a Rolls Royce or a Ferrari or even a Bentley, would they put a bumper sticker on it? They wouldn't, would they? Has anybody ever seen a Rolls with a bumper sticker? And the reason that they wouldn't is because they value what they got. They purchased it at a great price. And they value what they have. Well, Jesus bought my body. So I'm not going to put alcohol in it. I'm not going to smoke, put nicotine in it. Or drugs. And I'm certainly not going to put a bumper sticker like a tattoo. Now, if you're driving a Honda and it doesn't matter to you, that's okay. (laughs) But for me, it comes down to the appreciation of what was purchased. Why would it be any differently in any other area of life? Why would I want to sin in any other way? You pick it. Your favorite one. I don't care. Why would any of us want to operate or want to participate in sin? Participate in sin when we know that Jesus purchased us. Isn't that the same principle? It is whether we recognize it or not. 
Can you say amen? Turn with me over to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I love Paul's letter to the Romans. And I know a lot of people disagree with me on, on some of the things that I say about it. And that's okay. God doesn't require you to believe the truth. But I appreciate the book of Romans because not only is, is it the most doctrinally concise letter that he wrote. I mean, start to finish. It's, this thing's just chock full of doctrine. But it also explains Paul's struggles in his own spiritual walk. But notice what he's come to realize. And I, I don't believe that Paul had anything more than you and I from the standpoint that when he was saved, he didn't know it all any more than you and I know it all when we get saved. Paul learned. He grew and he developed spiritually just like we grow and develop spiritually. He had the benefit of having some visions of Jesus early on. So there may have been some things that he had access to that, that we now have access to through his writings. But I'm, I'm fully convinced, completely convinced that Paul didn't even understand the things that Jesus said to him when, they, when, he, when he was first told them. I've had the Lord speak to me enough to realize that sometimes I didn't get it until several years down the road. Then my eyes would be open and I'd realize, well, that's what he was talking about. You've had similar experiences too, haven't you? Well, why would it be any different from Paul? We look after some of these men in the scripture and we think, wow, they just had stuff we didn't have. No, they didn't. They were men just like you are. They were human just like you. They learned things as they went just like you. Paul got to the place where he said, I'd be willing to give up my salvation if it meant the salvation of Israel. You think he started there? I see him standing in Acts chapter 26. I see him standing before the high priest. And the high priest struck him and he turns around to the high priest and says, the Lord will strike you down for that. Doesn't sound like he's real loving and kind in that situation. Did it to you? Paul grew just like we grow. But notice what he said. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, talking about Adam, talking about the, the, the sin in the Garden of Eden, the sin that, that doomed mankind to, eternal, uh, to spiritual death. It would have been eternal except for Jesus. Notice he says in verse 17, for if, literally since, there are four different words, uh, four different words that are translated if in the King James or from the, from the uh, Greek to the King James New Testament, the English. Four different words, four different tenses. This is the first tense, and it says if, meaning he's posing a question, uh, a rational thought, a logical step of reasoning, and literally it means since. For if by one's man, one man's sin, literally since by one man's sin, death reigned by one. Well, what death? Physical death? No, spiritual death. One of the byproducts of spiritual death is physical death. Adam wasn't made subject to death in any form whatsoever. And it took 930 years of spiritual death to overtake his body and kill him physically. For since by one man's offense, sin, Adam's sin, death, spiritual death reigned by one, much more they which received the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. The abundance of grace just means God's loving kindness to send Jesus to the earth to finish the work. I like to summarize it and say grace just simply means the finished work of Jesus. Because everything God's ever done for us has culminated in Jesus and his work, isn't it? So grace, which is the favor of God, which has many different de uh, definitions, is most simply defined in my thinking as the finished work of Jesus. Much more since death reigned by one man's Adam's sin, much more those which receive the abundance, the overflow of the finished work of Jesus and the gift of righteousness, which is what everything Jesus did was for is so that you could be made righteous. Being born again means you take out the old spiritually dead spirit from a man and place a new spirit in him, a righteous spirit. It's the reconstitution, it's the recreation of man as the righteous creature that God made him to be in the Garden of Eden. Only more. 
Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace, the finished work of Jesus, and the gift of righteousness. Now, of all the things that, that Paul could have said by the Holy Ghost that are the benefits of that, notice the one that he makes mention of. He makes mention that righteousness results in reigning or authority in life through Jesus. Now, what's the focus? Is the focus righteousness or reigning? Remember in Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, don't get excited because the devils are subject to you in my name. Get excited because you've been made righteous. Now, for them, it was a promise of righteousness. For us, it's the reality of it. He said, that's what you get excited about. You know what it seems to me? And again, you judge this for yourself. But it seems to me that's a, that, that as, we, as we hear of some of these truths, we go around trying to be righteous. And you can, you can nearly, well, nine times out of ten, maybe even more than that. But you can usually identify where somebody is. I, I see this a lot in, in, uh, in modern circles with, uh, with the grace message. And I have nothing against the grace message. The grace message is the finished work of Jesus. But I see a lot of these graces that are going around trying to prove that they're righteous. And in many cases, they're doing it trying to serve the flesh. They'll drink because to prove that I'm righteous. This doesn't do anything with my relationship with God. Okay, well, enjoy yourself. They'll use the abundance of grace, or what they think it is, as an occasion to serve their flesh, to live like the world. Well, that really doesn't bother me. It bothers me when somebody tries to teach that and promote that. But I don't really care because that's where a lot of people start off with anyway. We're all growing in some way or another. I know when I first heard the prosperity message, I used the prosperity message selfishly. And God still answered my prayer. He still honored my faith in some respects. But I grew out of that. I came to realize that the real benefit of prosperity is not just having your needs met, but having enough to help somebody else. Well, God didn't get mad at me until I grew there. If he had gotten mad at me, I never would have grown to be there. We're that way with our kids. We can see our kids selfish. Uh, Christmas, we love Christmas because we load the floor up with toys. And the kids tear through one toy to get to another toy, to get to another toy, wrap paper, pull paper, and turn around at the end. They've got a pile of, of stuff, and they'll say, is that it? <laughs> Thinking we shopped for three months. You destroyed this in 30 seconds. We envisioned... Oh, mom and dad, thank you so much. This was such a great gift. No, chunk that and go for another one. Right? Well, we don't stop buying them gifts. Even if we threaten to. We've had a couple of Christmas. We said, that's it. We'll never get another thing. As long as we live, never another thing. And we do. So I see a lot of people growing through righteousness, if you understand what I mean by that. I'll try to explain. I see a lot of people trying to be righteous. I'm being righteous. I'm being righteous. It doesn't matter if I drink. It doesn't matter if I cuss. It doesn't matter if I smoke. I'm righteous. I'm going to be righteous. I'm going to be righteous. And then you get to the place where, you, where it settles in and you just realize, hey, I am. I'm not righteous because I'm doing something or because I'm not doing something. See, some people will hear the things that I just said about my choice not to drink or smoke or whatever, and they'll say, oh, there's under bondage. Well, bondage to what? Bondage to the purchase of Jesus? Okay, I'll take that. Doesn't mean I can't. means I choose not to. But you have to grow there. It doesn't start off there. And even if it does start off there because of some religious training or something like that, it's not the real you. You have to grow to the place where you come to, to terms with, you know, they've got, a, they've got a, a, a phrase where people say, or they, it's said of other people that they're comfortable in their own skin. I think we have to become comfortable with our own Christianity. Paul said to work out your own salvation. What's he saying? He's saying grow into who you are. So it doesn't matter to me if you're where I am. It doesn't bother me at all. Just don't try to get me to come where you are. 
I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking about it from a mature position, a mature perspective. Jesus didn't go around doing miracles and say, wow, did you see that one? He didn't come to, to where somebody was possessed of the devil and say, come out of him in Jesus' name and turn around and say, everybody got that? Can we get that one on tape? No, in fact, Jesus does works and turns to people and says, no, don't tell anybody about that. Are you serious? Now, if they'd been as mature as he, then maybe they wouldn't have told anybody about that. I've even heard some people say, well, Jesus was using reverse psychology. Jesus knew if he told them, don't tell, that's what they'd do. Give me a break. I didn't know Jesus was a manipulator. No, it's because people are at different places. It's okay to be wherever you are, but don't stay there. I see this a lot of times, and it becomes a real hindrance with people where they're fighting against healing or fighting against sickness, fighting to, to receive their healing. I see a lot of people, bless God, the Bible says that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. And so they work, I'm trying to get healed, I'm trying to get healed, I'm trying to get healed. The Bible doesn't say you can try to get healed. It says you are. And so that's the place of entering into rest, in my opinion. That's the place where Paul talks about entering into rest. And he's the only one that does, and it's the only place where the Bible really speaks of it. Is in Hebrews chapter 4. He talks about entering into rest. Seeing that we have such great promises from God. Let us strive to enter into rest. Well how do you do that? You grow into the knowledge and the understanding of. Wait a minute it's mine. The problem with that is. It's not as fast as we want it to be. Bless God. Healing is mine. I want it now. And a lot of times, times we want it. Because of what people will see in us. And our greatness of faith. Not because it's what Jesus got for us. I've had so many people say, Pastor Mike, agree with me that, that such and such will happen, so I'll have a great testimony. Well, I can't agree with you based on you having a testimony. Maybe a greater testimony for you to believe God and to be healed gradually. That, really, honestly, that's a greater test of faith than an instant healing. Now, that really excites people. much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign instantly much more they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall be able to say anything they want and instantly the results will occur See, that's the way a lot of people read it. That's the way a lot of people want it to be. Well, I guess I can, I'm safe to say we'd all like it to be that way. But it wasn't even that way with Jesus. What if Jesus got upset because the fig tree didn't die instantly? You remember the story in Mark chapter 11? Jesus cursed the fig tree. It wasn't until the next morning that they saw. What do you think the disciples thought about when Jesus cursed it and walked away? What's Peter going to do? Stand there overnight and watch? Well, but he's the son of God. Don't you think there were times where the devil came to him and tempted him and said, well, wait a minute, he just said something that didn't work. Same stuff we're tempted with, isn't it? Any of you ever had the devil say something like that to you? You take authority in the name of Jesus, say, bless God, this is the way it's going to be. Thank you, Father, according to your word, it's done. And then nothing happens, the devil says, well, that didn't work. Well, how do we know? Because we haven't seen it yet. We're so quick to judge things by what we see. And folks, that's the real test of spiritual growth. Spiritual maturity is accepting that something has happened because the word of God says so. Not because we see it yet. For since by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life. Shall reign in life. Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. We know verse 17. It's one of my favorites. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, 
He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's talking about spiritual things. Verse 21 is the one I want you to see, though. It says, For he, speaking of God, has made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us. Please notice God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus didn't take sin upon himself. It says Jesus was made to be sin. Made means nature. For God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. In other words, the sin that he was made was not his own doing. Adam's sin, the sin or the death that he was made was his own doing. Not so with Jesus. For God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin that, for this reason, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Revelation chapter 1 tells us about when Jesus appears to John. I think it's about verse 18. Jesus said, uh, uh, I am he that liveth and was dead. He's talking about spiritual death. He's not talking about physical death. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of hell and death. What are those? What are the keys of hell and death? By some people's thinking, Jesus is controlling who's in hell. No, that's not true. By some people's thinking, Jesus controls who lives and dies. That's not true either. Not according to Scripture. Well, then what are the keys of hell and death about? The keys of hell and death was the prison or the, the hell and death literally, was the prison that mankind was subject to because of Adam's sin. It's the spiritual death that man was sentenced to because of one man's offense, Adam. Jesus unlocked the door for any and all who accept him as Lord and Savior. That's what that means. He has the keys of hell and death, meaning he has unlocked the door for all who will accept him as their Lord and Savior and become the righteousness of God in him. And notice it's not just something that's laid upon you. It's not something that's given to you. It's something that you're made. Well, folks, if I've been made righteous, why am I trying to be it? That's like trying to say, well, I'm trying to be a man. Kind of dumb. I are one. Now, I am trying to be a better one. And that's through development of character. That's through actions and behavior and so forth. And in that sense, I'm trying to be more righteous, even though technically there's no such thing. You can't be more righteous than what Jesus made you. But you can live out righteousness more and more in your life. Well, I'm working on that too. That's, as far as I'm concerned, that's part of being a better man. But I can't be a man any more than I am a man. I can't be righteous any more than I am righteous. I hope you understand what I mean by that phrase. Why would I try to be righteous when I already am righteous? And if I already am righteous, then I reign in life by Jesus. I don't have to try. I just do. Now, I may grow in the knowledge of how. I may grow in my experience of reigning over this and then learning to reign over sickness and learning to reign over financial hardships and stuff like that. I may learn and gain experience on how. But according to the Bible, I just do because I've been made righteous. That's why Jesus didn't make a big deal. In my opinion, you judge it for yourself. But in my opinion, that's why Jesus didn't make a big deal about the miracles. Now, he did refer to them. He told his disciples, believe me that I'm in the Father because I say so, or else believe me for the work's sake. Use the miracles if you need to to prove it. But he didn't make a big deal about them other than that. In fact, there were some that came to Jesus, and Jesus said, you're just here because of the miracles that happened yesterday. Well, see, in my thinking, that's a good reason to be around. But he's saying there's something that goes a lot deeper than just the miracles. But you can't separate the miracles from the nature. See, your nature is what counts. But if you are righteous and know what it means, miracles will be part of it. Miracles will accompany. 
this making any sense? God's really talking to me a lot about this stuff. And it's causing me to settle down on some things. It's causing me to, to uh, well, to exercise greater authority in certain areas. Because now I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to prove that I have something. I'm not trying to, uh, trying to work my way into something. I'm coming to the place. I'm not there yet. But I'm coming more and more to the place where I accept, wait a minute, this is the way that it is. And there's a peace associated with that. And folks, I've got to tell you, I'm getting better answers to my prayers than I've ever gotten before. Because the foundation for them. You remember James chapter 5 verse 17? The, the last, part of, or last part of verse 16. It says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Coming to the understanding that I am. Not trying to be. Not, not working myself into. Not some confession thing to make it happen. But just accepting the fact that wait a minute. This is the way that it is. It's made me a whiz in prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. When I go to prayer, understanding that it's my relationship with God that's the foundation for what I'm about to ask, it makes all the difference in the world. I don't think God just wants that for me. He wants that for everybody. For God has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made, that we were made, the righteousness of God in Christ. Let's pray.